HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN podcasts have something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to another episode of Culture and Flavor with Zella Palmer. Y'all, I'm so excited today to have my dear friend Prince on uh, this episode. He is one of the youngest award-winning small business owners, chefs, and winemakers in New Orleans. Lobo serves as the general manager of Adis Nola, a highly rated and recognized Ethiopian restaurant founded by his mother and his father. He is the creator of their specialty honey wine. While Prince wears many hats in his family business, he currently serves as one of 12 hospitality entrepreneurs chosen throughout the country for the James Beard Legacy Network program. Prince, welcome to Culture and Flavor. I'm glad to be here, Zella. Thank you so much for bringing me to be a part of this amazing podcast. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. So let me just say that I just love your family. Um, You all have been such a light in New Orleans and the restaurant industry. And, you know, we remember you um, when you all had a small restaurant, your first restaurant on Broad Street and just your fun and engaging um, Instagram posts where you would come outside and you would say, you would say out to the world, welcome to Adis Nola. We would just laugh and just, you know, you brought so much joy to the community. And I just want to just, you know, give you and your family your flowers. Oh, we, we received them, uh, you know, so much that our family, every single one of us really pours our heart into the work that we do every single day at the restaurant. So it really means a lot, specifically coming from you, one of the most impactful, one of the most uh, trailblazing, uh, really amazing people in the city. And uh, your support is really, uh, you know, deeply, deeply appreciated. I think you need like a whole like um, motivational recordings because you motivate people <laughs> with your words. <laughs> people need to play it early in the morning just to get their oh, day yeah. started. So thank you for that kind uh, compliment. I appreciate that. But I want to start with your journey. Um, you were born in Baton Rouge, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Oh, in fact, 
uh, close, almost. Uh, I was raised in Baton Rouge. I spent the majority of my childhood and my adolescent years in Baton Rouge, but in fact, born in Luanda, Angola, uh, historically one of the most expensive places um, to live in the entire world. Uh, yeah, in, in Angola, Luanda. So that's that's where the story starts, at least for me. Well, tell us about the story. I want to hear from the beginning. I know our listeners want to hear your story and just how you ended up in New Orleans on Bayou Road. Right. Out of everything, I think, you know, and I talk about this a lot, some of the most beautiful moments in life really happen by coincidence and not even by coincidence. Really, it's God's favor and um, divine vision for you. Uh, every single person has this. Uh, if you really look into your own life, you will really find and see how uh, how favor of God, the universe, our ancestors really have moved me, have moved you. Um, I definitely think you're, you're you could definitely see it. It's very clear in what you're doing with your book coming out, Zella, and um, and I think it's very evident with Adi Snola. Um, it really starts all the way back, right? We're talking about communism in the continent of Africa. Uh, with my father being born in Angola in 63 at the time, his father working with the Portuguese who hadn't left and won't leave until 1975, um, they were sending all of their students to go to school in Europe. He ended up being sent at the at the brisk age of uh, 14 to Czech, Czechoslovakia at the time in uh, Prague, where he meets um, friends and where he'll eventually go on to meet my mother the next year. Uh, my father's name, Jaime de Lobu. My mother's name, Brooke Alamayehu. Um, they meet each other. My mother gets sent because her father was in the military. He was, in fact, the royal guard of Haile Selassie, and he was the youngest royal guard. He actually died in service protecting the monarchy, which we know was also overthrown in 74 um, as well, too. Um, so they meet, create this unbreaking divine union and uh, decide to come to Angola after they graduate high school in this you know small town. Um, they go to Angola. I was born, uh, what, 97, uh, very recently for many people. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's where the story starts, right? Um, my mother, an Ethiopian woman, uh, married to an Angolan man and my father, which isn't very typical. Ethiopians, if you know them, they're very prideful people. They don't like to mix. You know what I mean? They don't like to mix, uh, much at all, but you know, my father just has that charm, I guess. Mm. So it he starts. Does. He does. <laughs> I, try to, I try to pick up some from him as, as much as I can. But um, yeah, 97. So I was born in Luanda at the time. They were actually, my mother was working for a nonprofit. My father was a uh, vet. So both of them actually had ended up, um, well, not, not yet, but both of them eventually will become uh, PhD doctors whenever they decide when I was two years old to move to America. My mother came by herself um, because I kept getting sick. I almost died as a baby, in fact, mm. because um, I kept I was very susceptible to uh, malaria and the mosquitoes. They say I got that sweet blood. Is what they say. <laughs> I got that good, that good stuff. You know what I mean? High, honey, high honey quality. Stuff. You know what I mean? High quality. Um, uh, I give credit to my father for eating a lot of chocolate when he was young. I think that's what that is. <laughs> Maybe it's the honey wine. <laughs> it's, that's what, it's something. It's something. I don't know what it is, but boy, even to this day, you know, I, I, I'm at, I, they love they love me so much. So, 
<laughs> Actually, at two years old, I almost died. Um, and mm-hmm. so my mother was very frantic and just concerned. I'm her only child, you know. Um, and so she can't lose her only child. So by any means necessary, she has to find a way to keep me safe. Her decision mm-hmm. was to come to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, out of all places. Um, you ask why and you ask why. I'm like, out of all places, the world is a pretty big place. People, you can pretty much go anywhere in the world as an immigrant, almost anywhere in the world as an immigrant that you could decide to go. But the important thing for many people is that they like migrants out from a migrant perspective. Generally speaking, they'll go where there's family, friends, a community where they can really be comfortable. Um, In Baton Rouge, there was one gentleman and his daughters who were there. His name is Ashagre Yegletu. This gentleman was the second in command over Ethiopia from 1960 to, well, let me, let me, let me backtrack. This is, in fact, this in fact would be after the monarchy was overthrown. So after 74, uh, it was taken over by a lot of students, in fact, college students who had revolted because there was a famine, a drought that was happening in Ethiopia and they wanted to reclaim uh, or you know, try to protect the general populace. Uh, whenever the monarchy, Haile Selassie, 82 at the time, had become deeply out of touch with um, humanity. Um, mm. So uh, they took over the country and, and was this little boy, Ashagre Yegletu, who developed in high school, developed his entire high school curriculum uh, and they had found him, discovered him, and wanted to give him many opportunities for growth, which in, in turn turned into being the like executive prime minister of Ethiopia for about four years mm. um, until he had to hide as a refuge where he found where no Ethiopians, no community whatsoever, he came to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, uh, where he can kind of hide in exile um, after the devastating acts that, that come from Mengistu and his regime um, killing almost every single general in in uh, leading Ethiopia at the time and about a million Ethiopians. Um, and so mm. he fled and became eventually became a professor of business uh, at Baton Rouge in at uh, Southern University in Baton Rouge and still is to this day. My mother found him and his daughters. They became best friends. And, and that's where her s- journey starts. Uh Yeah. <laughs> wow, wow. long-winded sure. but, you know you can tell there's a book coming out soon we oh yeah uh, that's a put pen and paper but i'm glad i can kind of solidify it on this podcast um i haven't had a chance to write much of that yet but um i'm collecting as much data as i can to talk about that crazy 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 journey what um, a story what a story and so you coming to baton rouge you know you growing up without that many um ethiopian or angolan um, you anything. know, patriots, anything, right? Tell us about your life just growing up in Baton Rouge. I mean, you know, did you meet Lil Boosie? Did <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. In fact, um, in Baton Rouge, I would say uh, was a lot of, you know, those years really had a large impact and still have a large impact on me right now. It, it, it made me fight. It turned me into a fighter. If you know people from Louisiana, specifically New Orleans, Baton Rouge in general, um, we're fighters. We, we go through a lot of um, adversity. We go through, there are a lot of trials. There are a lot of tribulations because this is statistically the 50th state in Louisiana, even though, again, New Orleans is its own thing and Baton Rouge is kind of its own thing in comparison to the rest of Louisiana. Um, 
well, I had to fight for, for my identity. I think one of the biggest struggles I had to really discover was who in the hell am I? Who is this kid whose father's from Angola, mother's from Ethiopia, raised, parents were raised in Europe, you know, being raised in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, out of all places. Who in the hell is this kid? Mm. And so that's a battle that I had to fight for at least two decades, you know, from from being there since I was two and still kind of adding to that um, who I really am as, as an individual. And in that, you know, in, in growing up in the hood, South Harrell's Ferry, Orleans Lane, not, we're not even going to say the hood. I'm talking about we were in the gutter. This was the like no one should live here. I think there's even caution tape in this neighborhood uh, mm-hmm. where I was raised now after the flood that happened in Baton Rouge. They just decided, in fact, this is a better place that we'll just keep barred off. So people don't end up going back there. I remember seeing, you know, AK-47s in this neighborhood where there's so many children just running around without their parents. The candy lady, joyous memories of the candy lady and the ice cream uh, trucks coming around. Um, and also terrifying memories of, uh, of, of fighting, right, of, of just being out amongst all these this youth and children, troubled youth um, who really ne- did never really had any guidance from their elders. Um, and so in the midst of all of that, being called the white boy, uh, because I spoke so proper in my, in my English that I was speaking was, was, you know, didn't have any accents or any accentuations to it. It was just blank English. So in those communities, I really, uh, or in that community where I, where my mother could afford to stay, right. As, um, a college student, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of trouble. And also the school. I went to a private school. She saved up all of her money that my father would try to send her to barely, barely afford to send me to a decent private school where I would go to be the only black student in this school, along with my uh, four other cousins uh, in a school of about 600 students. Um, we were the only black people in this entire school. So we'd go there to be uh, really experience firsthand racism from families, parents saying that their, could, their kids couldn't be around us, couldn't play with us. Um, or me always having been kind of the black sheep literally in my classrooms where I was always used as an example for discipline. Um, largely, I think, simply because of, you know, my, my, my skin tone and just being black. So there was a lot of conflict growing up. Um, but inevitably, those challenges, I believe, really developed and cultivated me into becoming a tried, tested and true individual who can really stand up against anything um, who knows himself better than, you know, anything else. So how did your mother keep you grounded um, mm-hmm. in spite of all of the, you know, the um, challenges that you face in a private white, you know, um, school, elementary school, um, dealing with all kinds of misery and poverty in the neighborhood that you grew up in in Baton Rouge. How does she keep you grounded? Was did she was she able even to, you know, get access to Ethiopian food to make sure that you knew your culture? How how does she keep you grounded? Well, you know, I really give a lot of you know, credit and just praise to her for for going to school as a college student, working a job, you know, that that pretty much was like throughout the sleeping nights uh, that she would leave while I was sleeping and then still finding time to raise, uh, you know, me as a child. Um, 
it, it wasn't easy in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but also credit to the sisters that she had developed, that community that she had developed through um, Ashe, right? The gentleman who uh, was responsible for also getting her into Southern University. Um, they built a community, right? So if my mother, generally speaking, was always busy, if she wasn't able to get me from school or she wasn't able to, to look after me one day, I would be with Auntie or, or Tia Anna or Tia Saba, and we would be, and Tia comes from the background of like the Angolan or Portuguese background, which is where that comes from. Um, I would be with either one of them, and then there, each one of them had two children. So we had like five of us who also went to that school where we really stuck together. You know, we really fought for one another whenever it came um, when it when it came down to it. And that community, having that literal village that was able to raise me and the rest of us, uh, I think was really the network that that created that connective tissue that. Um, allowed us all to really stay grounded, um, to really know who we were. We had something called Mahabras, in Ethiopian culture, Mahabra. It literally means coming together. And in this Mahabra, once a month, um, Ashe ended up developing an Ethiopians in Louisiana organization, just a small group of like six or four or five families uh, who would come together in celebrating of Ethiopian culture in someone's home every single month. And it was Doro Wat, the national dish with the injera, and then mm-hmm. all these other different flavors that we had a chance to experience since young. Um, the coffee ceremonies as a way to uh, wrap up the engagement that I used to hate as a child. And I'm now also, I think the main person promoting them, uh, definitely in Louisiana, probably in the South as well. Um promoting the origin of coffee. And so we get to see and experience and get exposed to all of these uh, cornerstone pieces of Ethiopian culture, the clothes that they would wear, the handmade fabric, uh, white, clean, with also intricate designs um, that were very unique um, to Ethiopian culture and also inspired the daishikis that we know and love today um, from uh, which is the origin. The origin comes from the 13th century noblewoman of Ethiopia, um, where uh, a man had found this clothing design and decided to turn it into a dashiki. Um, uh, so many different pieces. And this is where we get to see these cornerstone pieces of culture. And, not, you know, um, again, just beyond grateful. And that is what kind of built or was planting the seeds, we'll say, um, of really understanding, deeply understanding and gaining that my own sense of pride uh, from my mother's culture. Mm. So how um, at what point did you all come to New Orleans? Well, that was after my mother had went through the. Okay, so this is the crazy thing. Right. So whenever you come as a as a as a migrant. Right. Or immigrant, should I say, um, especially at that time in history, things become very, very difficult. She did not choose the absolute best time to come to America. Why? It's about uh, a year before it was January 1st, 2000, whenever we come. And this is, in fact, a year before 9-11 happens. Why is that important? Why does why does that, you know, have a big influence in our story? Well, because whenever you come to the States before then, getting citizenship, getting a green card is how that process, well, a visa first to come to America and then a green card. That process is generally easy. People before that, it doesn't take them many times, a year, two years to get into that process. After 9-11 happens, they immediately close and shut down like 
so many people from getting or bar off so many people from getting uh, green cards uh, in America uh, because, you know, this is coming from the middle, whatever, the Middle East, whoever, um, in 9-11, Ethiopia including Egypt is one of those countries that is, it's a Semitic, they speak a Semitic language. There are, they are Semitic people coming from East Africa. So they include them in this overall uh, kind of um, lockdown or locking out uh, people from this part of uh, the world in order to, who are trying to gain citizenship that in, in what will happen from nine 11 will inevitably make it 20 years two decades of being in America with just a visa without being able to receive a green card. Okay. Which we just got, mind you, a couple years ago, um, a couple, a couple years ago, right. Um, because of the, again, what happened during 9-11, Ethiopia gets brought into that situation. And so my mother, having no other choice, she has to go to school. And that's her only way to be, um, to get a visa to be in America legally, unless you have a job, which before, again, 9-11 was easy. After 9-11, they make it to where you have to pay or your employer has to pay $50,000 for you or 30000 I think. And you have to possess a job that no other person in your area is qualified to work. Mm. Okay. What does that mean? It's damn near impossible to have a real job in America and get a visa for it. So with no other options, my mother is pretty much left to go to school as a student and to stay in school as a student until there's no other options left. Literally meaning she was pretty much forced to become a PhD doctor or to get Mm -hmm. her doctorate because there was literally no other way for her to remain in America uh, legally unless she remained in school as a student. And then from that moment to have a job after she goes as far as you can in education to have a job that's only designed for her. So she had to create, or essentially she had to create an entire uh, uh, curriculum uh, within the school who then had to put out a job application for her, for her to be the only candidate that could uh, successfully qualify for this position. Um, mm. And so that, you know, is what ends up having to what ends up being the moment where we come to New Orleans. She graduates in 2009, nine years later, after finally, you know, getting her Ph.D., where she went through a lot of hardship to receive and then uh, having that position uh, filled in Southern University of New Orleans. Uh, She comes down to New Orleans and becomes a professor of public policy um, in their business school as well. So that is how we ended up in New Orleans in 2009. Mm. And when did your father come from, uh, come, come here? He wouldn't come about 15 years later. Um, again, the struggle of being in America, uh, you couldn't, he literally couldn't be here for longer than I think three months at a time or so. So he would come for a moment and then inevitably, inevitably have to go back, um, Mm to uh, Angola until he decided to also go back to school and receive his and get a student visa to also go back to school at LSU and then go through his uh, PhD program as well. Mm, That must have been hard for you, you know, growing up and not having your father there 24-7. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. It was one of that that by itself, I think, just in general in, in, in America and New Orleans specifically is one of the leading contributing factors to um, 
the school to prison pipeline, right? We talk about um, one in three, one in four black men will either go to prison, uh, mm-hmm. which is unbe- an unbelievable statistic. Um, and a lot of that was success- successfully designed um, by, you know, um, uh, in the 80s during so many different programs that they were doing to divide the black household, even other pra- propaganda uh, that they were putting into our communities, uh, the war on drugs, uh, alcoholism in, in our communities, it really divided our household. So it's 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 a well-known fact that not having a father figure in, uh, specifically in a black family household, negatively contributes, substantially negatively contributes to a lot of the issues that we see in New Orleans, right? We're talking about crime increases. We're talking about, you know, the lack of youth programs, the lack of leadership and guidance from these young men. Um, mm. And, you know, I as well what had was a victim of that from simply my father was alive, but he simply just wasn't there. Um, and so essentially what I had to do on my own from my adolescence was teach myself how to become a man, which is something I'm still doing at uh, 25 years old, still having to learn, still having to, to teach all, all myself, all the skills, all the characteristics and what it really looks like. Because if you don't see something uh, – growing up, then it becomes substantially more difficult to be able to be something, uh, right? So if you don't see a man being a father in your household, you have to, what, at least what I was, what I was able to do on my own or, or had to do on my own was to create that image of what I thought a man was, uh, for his woman, right? So how do I become a, a good partner? How do I show up for my children? How do I, uh, really be the best man and to, to lead this legacy, right? Um, and so a lot of it, I thought that because my father wasn't there, a lot of it I thought was just working hard and not actually providing emotional support um, to my partner, to, you know, potential children. Um, so, yeah, it was, it's, it's difficult to say, but that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother, yeah. you know what I mean, episode. That's a whole nother uh, podcast. Yeah, <laughs> to, to really dig into that, you know, especially myself. Like I said, I, I was a victim of that as well. And, um, you know, it's something that I, I really think I want to change. And we talk about the, the negative outcomes of, uh, uh, crime and all these things. And really the source, the root cause of it is just, we need more men to really step up. Even if it's not fathers, direct fathers, biological fathers, just men in general to -hmm. really step up and to lead our, our communities into the right place. I think, um, the women in New Orleans have been doing substantial, I mean, really groundbreaking work. Um, but I think we need to see more men, black men really step up and, um, Mm, you know, yeah. So true. So what were your impressions of New Orleans when you moved here? Because you were here um, pre-Katrina, correct? Uh, well, I've been back and forth pre-Katrina, you know, being so close in Baton Rouge, my mother going back and forth. Um, but we didn't eventually move until 2009 officially. But okay. I, there is a story at a young, a young prince, eight years old, um, uh, the year I can't necessarily remember. But we had came to New Orleans, I'm assuming pre-Katrina, we came to New Orleans um, and I'm with my mother, her friends and our other um, uh, family members. And we come to New Orleans, I'm driving, we're riding down Claiborne. I look to the right, it's Manchu's Chicken, this purple building. (laughs) I look to the left, you know, it's like Basin and all these people pretty much, I think, starting or ending a second line. 
uh, all these graffiti under this, you know, bridge. And I say to my mother, mother, please, can we go back to America? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) For our listeners, for our listeners, you know, Louisiana is very diverse. Baton Rouge has its own culture. New Orleans has its own culture. And within Louisiana, you have Lake Charles, Opelousas, Lafayette. We have a very diverse culture. So, you know, asking Prince about what his impressions were in New Orleans, I think, you know, helped him and his family birth Adis Nola. And that's where we're going to take a pause and we will be back after these advertisements just, and we're going to talk about Haile Selassie uh, and when he came to New Orleans, Emperor Haile Selassie, when he came to New Orleans, we're going to talk about the birth of um, Adis Nola. And then we're also going to talk about Prince and his return to Ethiopia for the first time. So we'll be back right after these messages. Thank you for listening to Culture and Flavor. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams of new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Okay, we're back. So, um, I'm, you know, I'm curious to know, you know, I don't know if a lot of our listeners know, and you talked about, you know, your father, your, your, um, your own family, I'm sorry, not your father, your own family's um, legacy and participation in the Ethiopian Emperor Haile Selassie's, um, you know, royal court. I would love to hear the story of of how Haile Selassie came to New Orleans, and just your own impressions of the the link and the connection between New Orleans and Ethiopia. Uh, well, the connections. I really feel like they are um, they're 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 so closely tied to one another reading about um, Ethiopia, understanding about their history, and then seeing New Orleans for the first time, even as, you know, as a child, I think it really, it really sparks emotions um, that it's, it's really hard to, to, for these places to be so far apart, yet so deeply connected. We're talking about the pride. We're talking about the culture of food, the culture of family, the culture of community, and all these things that come together between both of these places that are literally almost identical. Um, uh, 
uh, on two completely different parts of the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in in Ethiopia, they have uh, Meskel and uh, Epiphany, all these special holidays. They're very spiritual, very religious people um, being Orthodox uh Christian, where they'll do these second line dances using umbrellas that we'll also see in our second lines, uh, specifically for weddings and whatnot around New Orleans, um, is one thing for me that's really uh, deeply connected along with the food in itself. Um, mm-hmm. In Ethiopia, we're talking about a 2000 year old, longer than that, black mm-hmm. history, untouched black history, uncolonized black history. And when I see New Orleans, I feel that same fire of the people who are here. Mm. I'm talking about the northernmost Caribbean city, a place where people can truly express themselves uh, with no judgment, who can really be themselves and who really have ownership over the cultural and spiritual um, involvement and influence in this city in the same way that they do in Ethiopia, uh, even though New Orleans, New Orleans being one of the oldest uh, cities, if not the oldest city, um, if we're talking, if we're considering it, which you have to consider the indigenous population, um, just seeing how much love that these people have, that our people have in New Orleans, and and, and seeing that in New, in, in Ethiopia, uh, you know, it's it's no surprise that a place like Addis Nola exists. Um, but you know, we're we're just I'm happy we're happy, and I think a part of my purpose is literally being the bridge between both of these people, right? Between both of these communities, for them to see one another, recognize one another, and then learn from one another. Inevitably, uh, to really find ways for our uh, black people, uncolonized in Ethiopia and in New Orleans, fighting against oppression um, more than I think many anyone I think in in um, more than many people in America. Um, to just see that bridge, create that bridge, and, and inevitably fight uh, forward towards a better future together. So, you know, just so our readers, our listeners, I'm sorry, so our listeners um, can hear, you know, just a little bit of context and why Adis Nola is so important. Um, in 1954, you know, I was when I wrote the book Recipes and Remembrances of Fair Dillard, 1869 to 2019, and shout out to Malik Bartholomew, who is um, a historian in New Orleans, you know, a mutual friend of mine and Prince. And, you know, he uh, led me on this journey in the in the library and the archives to show me a cookbook that was uh, from the 1950s that was in Dillard's archives. Uh, and, you know, it talked about when Emperor Haile Selassie came to New Orleans, you know, um, and he came in the 1950s. And there was an interesting, and when, before Miss Leo uh, Chase died, the, the queen of Creole cuisine, I was able to get an interview with her and she talked about how she was on Canal Street and she got, she, you know, dressed all of her children up because the emperor, the emperor, the, the descendant of, you know, uh, of, of Jesus Christ, of Sheba, of King Solomon, you know, the uh, who was revered in Jamaican culture, was coming to New Orleans, and she wanted to, you know, have her children see who he was. And she said that she remembered that no one, none of her people, knew who he was. And she said it made her sad. You know, and that is one of the reasons why she decided that her children would go to HBCU because she wanted people to know, she wanted her children to know their history. And, you know, when Haile Selassie came, he was, um, 
they had to take down the, you know, the segregated signs. They had to have an integrated ball for him because he was an international dignitary and helped, you know, make sure that Mussolini didn't uh, take over Africa. Right. And so, you know, with all of that knowledge and with, you know, an understanding of who you are now and, you know, just being located in the historical Bayou Road, which I would love for you to let our listeners know why Bayou Road is so um, integral to um, our story, you know, our global story. How does that make you feel? Hmm. You know, I, I, I tap into that, you know, that's that's a force and an energy that, again, whenever you wake up in the morning, whenever you walk out of the door, it just makes you you got to feel that in your blood. It's it's a part of us. It's a part of every single one of us, not just me. It's a part of you. It's a part of every single black man, woman, and child in New Orleans. Uh, that, and just, and just feeling that, you know, whenever you wake up in the morning, we are kings, we are queens. Everywhere that we are on earth, you know, um, in, in, in so many ways. And I think just that mentality, feeling that in your heart, breathing that whenever you take a breath, feeling just the the cells in your body made up of, of, of the things from the Ethiopia, the origin of the world, you, you have to feel that, you know, you, you know, you have to know that um, mm. in, in so many ways. Um, and that's that's just what that that's that's when you talk about Alice like when we talk about these things, I get like teary eyed and I cause I could just and I get chills just knowing that history. And and I want every single person, because I do understand so many perspectives, I want every single one of our people to feel that same energy, to walk with that same regalness, to walk with that same love in their heart, really to understand like yes, like we are, you know, King King Solomon, Queen of Sheba. That is our lineage, you know, every mm-hmm. single one of us. Um, and for him to come into New Orleans is un- unbelievable. I'm I'm looking for the spear right now. Apparently, he gave us some gifts. Uh, yeah, yeah, Orleans, he did. So, um, he gave a shield. He gave a shield, and I think if I'm not mistaken, it's in Suno's archives. Um, but don't quote me on that. But he did give a shield to the city. He was also hosted at Loyola University. Um, they had a ball where uh, the city of New Orleans gave him a Cafe Brulot set, which mm-hmm. is one of the you know iconic coffee dishes in New Orleans that I would love to see make a comeback where they take orange and lime and stick cloves in it mm-hmm. and pour brandy over it. And it's one of the classic Creole coffee dishes. And he was and then I think they gave him something else. But he, you know, he was quoted as saying that he was excited to try. He was excited to hear jazz, um, try the shrimp and uh, the fried chicken. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, come on now. That's that's exactly that's us. You know, I mean, that's that's our, that's our people, man, you know. Um, oh, man. And just yeah. imagine how it felt in the 1950s for African-Americans to see him being treated with dignity and respect. You wow. know, as that was deep. 
That was that was a deep moment in our history, um, and I just want to lift that story up. But how did how did Adis Nola come about? I mean, you know, I'd love to hear the story of how you all decided. You know what? We're going to open up an Ethiopian restaurant in New Orleans because in other major cities, DC, New York, you know, where there's larger Ethiopian communities, you know, there's it's, it's saturated and it's a competition, and you know, and people are now, you know, Americans are used to eating Ethiopians uh, cuisine and most major cities. So how did, how did your idea or how did your family's idea come about? Well, I think we laid the groundwork uh, beautifully to get into this part of the story. Um, We talked about the connection of Haile Selassie coming to New Orleans. We talked about the connections between Ethiopia itself, right? And we talk about the name of the capital of Ethiopia, Addis Ababa. Wow. Mm. You have to feel that. Why? Because it translates to new flower. Addis mm-hmm. meaning new, Ababa meaning flower. And we're talking about the connection between that and our New Orleans, right? A place 60% Black, full of our people, full of the culture, full of the love, in the same way connected in many ways to Ethiopia in itself, right? Mm-hmm. So talking about all these things, knowing this, feeling this, walking this, breathing this in every single cell of your body, being putting yourself in my mother's position, being here for two decades and never really seeing a, st- a place or establishment where they highlighted or celebrated the connections between those cultures or the uh, or celebration of the people in both of those cultures and the communities in both of those cultures. She had a dream one day and woke up jumping out of her sleep to say, if 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 I don't do this, I I it's hard for me to believe that anyone else will. Mm. If I don't do this, if I don't make this dream vision a reality in the way that people can experience it, I feel like no one else is going to do this Mm. because it hasn't, it just hasn't been done in the way that we know it in the way that we believe it should be done. Right. Not because in, in many places around America, Ethiopian establishments, again, are the heart and spirit of our communities, along with the churches. But in those places, I feel like what tends to happen a lot of times is they become disconnected with the actual city or the or the actual community where they where they occupy our people, again, being so prideful in the same way as if a New Orleanian would go to D.C. and open a New Orleans restaurant. Right. You're going to go to Denver and you're going to open a Cree, a Cajun Creole restaurant. You're going to you, you, you're going to feel or if it doesn't exist, you're going to want someone to do it. Right. Yeah. It's the same thing. Whenever our Ethiopian people come to America, they generally create these communities that resemble back home. And so whenever we came, we wanted to we wanted to highlight Ethiopia while also paying deep respect to New Orleans, knowing how developed, knowing how in knowing how influential uh, the culture has played in this specific city over any other city in America. We knew that we had to be that bridge between the continent, between the motherland and our current home, being that New Orleans is one of the, you know, the, the, the main ports that a lot of our people, specifically from West Africa, 25% from Angola, Congo, where I was born, were, were here in New Orleans to bridge that gap of bringing our piece of home, our slice of home, that slice of happiness and love to New Orleans, right? 
And, and, and so that was it, knowing that there was, there was no way around it. And it, it, so much so you can call it destiny, that it was destined to happen, that all the trials and tribulations of, you know, meeting my father and going to school, all of those things, 20 years in America without being a citizen, all of those things were so impactful for this establishment, for this place to be open and serving what I believe is some of the best Ethiopian food in the South, eventually America, you know, um, to really. (laughs) 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 If you know, you know, if you don't, I'm glad that you heard it for the first time. That is our, our testament. You know, all the things that we're talking about now is compiled in two words. Adis. No, that bridge, it lives, it breathes, it vibrates through that singular word, Addis Ababa and New Orleans, Louisiana, in one place existing in one time for our people, for our community, the bridge of the gap from one of the the most historic cities in America back to the origin of humanity in Ethiopia. So when you open a business, you know, some of the things that they always say is so integral to opening a business, location, location, location. You are on Bayou Road. Adis Nola is located on Bayou Road. Why is that location so integral to Black ownership, to your restaurant and your legacy and what you're building in uh, New Orleans? Why is Bayou Road so special? Wow. I mean... When we when we say Addis Nola, when we when we say it right, understanding Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, being the new flower. When you say Addis Nola, we're literally saying New New Orleans, new in the sense of paying respect and homage to the ancestors, to the people who came before us. And if you're familiar with Bayou Road, and if you're learning about Bayou Road, one of the most important things to know is this is the oldest road in the city before it was even a city while new orleans was called bobanka or bobancha right meaning the land the land of many tongues the place of trade the place of commerce for the indigenous for the choctaw for so many people who had passed through this region this was the land of our indigenous people right mm-hmm. and even so even so much so that there's dates and information. I know that you can um, testify to this, that the Senegambian West African people had traveled to this land on their own before settlers, before colonizers had ever been here before in trading with the indigenous people. This is ground zero. This is the crossroad of community, culture, uh, blackness, freedom. This is where it begins. In, in, in many things in life, we know the world is circled. The, the, where things begin are also where things end, mm. right? So if we're starting at the ground zero, we know this will end as ground zero. This will always and forever be the place, the crossroad of culture, community, our people, black freedom. This mm. will always be that. And for mm. us to come here... And to put, you know, our flag into the ground, to put our Adis Nola feet in love and family here specifically is to push that as far as it can possibly go. 
tell us about some of the other businesses, some of your, you know, your, um, the other business owners that are on Bayou Road that has really created a unique community and just a place for not only locals to come, but people from all over the world, because you all are attracting, you know, a lot of folks coming to Nola to, you know, that are hosting parties that are, you know, you've created this community, but it's also in alignment with the other businesses that are on Bayou Road. Well, on Bayou Road specifically, this road is in fact the a testament to the love in New Orleans, a testament to the love of family, family ties and community of the McKenna's. A part of that, at least recently within the last uh, three or four decades, Bayou Road um, is this um, labor of love that's come together so beautifully in the sense that more than 50% of the street is black owned, specifically Beverly McKenna and Mark McKenna. Um, Beverly McKenna, who also had a similar dream with my mother, which is what connected them to those kindred spirits together um, to bring the restaurant here. A dream of a black owned, a fully black owned street in New Orleans, um, not just her specifically, but for all of our all of our people to come and see that there's black ownership, entrepreneurship on this street we call the Black Bayou, right? And there's 13 businesses that are here. About 10 of them, 10 of them are black owned businesses within a one and a one and a half block uh, radius, right? So we're talking about McCarty's, some of the best fried chicken in New Orleans. Jesus, we order from them, I think, once a day. It's a part of our, our <laughs> daily our daily bread is McCarty's, right? Um, then you have a community book center that's been doing their thing for two decades here on Bayou Road. Uh, I think the longest standing black owned bookstore in New Orleans, Um if Mama Vera, Mama, Mama Jennifer, their story is amazing. What they're doing in the city, they are literally, uh, they will be, books will be written about these women and that are already written about these women of, mm. of what they've done in New Orleans. Um, and, and, and they, you know, are so impactful and so pivotal for us being here as well, too, being one of the people who encouraged Miss McKenna to go discover us as a restaurant in our original location. Then you have the ACC that just moved here, the Andrew Caillou Center that has No Dream Deferred, who's doing a Black uh, black Dream Festival in on our block right now um, oh. with Black theater, Black artists, um, all Black uh, produced theater sets that are happening across the street from the restaurant next to the community book center. Then you have Whiskey and Sticks, this really cool, really beautiful um, and charming Black cigar bar and whiskey bar. Um, you have Manny from Fruit Orleans, who just moved to the block, who's been selling fruit from a, a pop-up stand uh, for the last seven years and started on this street. He he had a full circle moment to come and have a brick and mortar, his first brick and mortar, and made a year anniversary recently on Bayou Road. Then you have Pagoda, which t- just recently turned into a co-op. So in um uh, a worker-owned operation where I think more than half uh, half of their staff is also black, meaning that also is a uh, a percentage black-owned establishment uh, that's owned by the people that work there. You have the cupcake fairies, I am that I am, uh, the the Rasta Temple, uh, right? Uh, who was here before we were? Uh, Keys of Beauty. I mean the the last. I mean it's endless, right? The amount yeah, of. Coco Hut, come on now. You know what I mean? I had to get some help. Coco Hut, who's here. 
um, a club Caribbean who's been here doing oh, uh, uh, doing yeah. their thing for the last two decades. Um, you know, so we talk about all of these families and really what it is, the successful thing about Bayou Road is it's families. It's mm-hmm. people who, even if they're not family, a co-op is designed in a way to represent a family structure, right? Mm. It's a man, a husband and wife in uh, Whiskey and Sticks Cocoa Hut with uh, the the mother and, and one of her nieces uh, working together, you know. Um, and so that's really um, one of the things that we're most grateful for in moving here, making that uh, intentional decision to come and really um, be one of the pillars in this community to continue mm-hmm. to highlight and represent Ethiopian culture, New Orleans history, um, not from Bayou Road to New Orleans, but also from Bayou Road to the world. Um, mm. We want people to know what's happening over here, and, and we're happy to be a part of it. So what can you expect when you, I mean, I know it's, it was so much intention in designing your new location on Bayou Road. How long have you all been open? Has it been a year yet? Is it, and, uh, has we just it been made, that long? We made six months uh, from November wow. 10th. Yeah, we just made uh, six months, so half a year. You all were building and, you know, reconstructing the, the site well, yeah. Yeah. for over COVID. And, you know, so tell it, you were so intentional about the design and how you wanted it to feel. You know, tell us what a, a, a patron can expect when they walk through the doors. Well, first and foremost, we have to give credits where credit is due. Uh, Boa. Um, one name, right? Like Cher Boa herself uh, working with us, this amazing spirit from uh, St. Martin, uh, one of the most amazing designers in in America, without a doubt. I think she just was on a New York Times article about her design work. Um, she is this figure that comes into the restaurant one day in our original location, sees the space and says, you know what? we are going to transform this place to make it feel like you're being transported into Ethiopia directly. And so that was our goal. Uh, Whenever we came into this new space and had this blank, completely blank canvas to work from, that used to be a Chinese buffet, uh, sore thumb on the block. It didn't didn't really fit so well. Um, So the moment that you walk into the space, Boa is along with Nomita Joshi and Sarah Lee from Spruce, a design boa who has her her company, OI Studio. We came together and drew up this vision of rural Ethiopia, farmlands of Ethiopia, the mountain lands of Ethiopia, all of these impactful uh, topography and geography and smells, textures, feels to where whenever you step foot Uh, or even think about the space itself, uh, emotionally, spiritually, and physically, you are being brought into uh, Ethiopia from every region. So tell us about the menu, because I know, you know, I find, I mean, I I love Ethiopian food. I have had Ethiopian food in Chicago, DC, lots of different, and I know there's tons of amazing Ethiopian cuisine out there. And I'm excited for a lot of the young rising Ethiopian chefs that are doing incredible work in New York, all over. Um, And, you know, one of the uh, leading ones is uh, Chef Marcus Samuelson, you know, and I'm sure that's an inspiration for you and many Ethiopian chefs. But Adis Nol is very unique. Um, Tell us a little bit about some of the dishes that you have on the menu. Uh, well, our menu uh, was designed and developed 
to try to touch as many regions in Ethiopia as we can. Obviously, the cornerstones of Ethiopian dining, which was really solidified in the 1800s uh, by a chef who decided uh, to make a book talking about the kind of original Ethiopian foods, one of them being the Dorowat, the national dish of Ethiopia, this 24-hour caramelized onion chicken stew. I hope I'm making your mouth water right now. Um, yes, you are. <laughs> uh, that followed by the Tibbs, um, which is a quick saute, a really huge staple in the culture with lamb. We've even incorporated shrimp into this recipe uh, because we are in New Orleans, right? So we are talking about that connection. So we're here. We have, you know, sourced great local produce um, from the purveyors in this city, and shrimp is one of them. Uh, finding a recipe that it's inspired by that, as well as some other pieces, the sambusas, um, and really centering the menu and the cuisine around the family style setting. We want people to really get connected. One of the beautiful things about Ethiopian cuisine and culture is that it really brings people together. You sit at this dinner table, you're eating with your hands, which we've designed a hand washing station in the restaurant. I think one of the only in New Orleans. Um, our menu is designed in a communal uh, way in a way that really brings people together through the stews and the sautés and uh, some other fried dishes, this whole snapper, again, another uh, local um, thing that you can get from the Gulf of Mexico and New Orleans that are really easy to, to source um, that mm. we have on the menu as well. So we are very traditional, rooted in traditional Ethiopian cuisine, while also, again, paying homage and highlighting uh, produce from purveyors uh, in New Orleans who are local in New Orleans as well. Mm, so, and I know recently you went to Ethiopia for the first time, if I'm not mistaken. How was that? How was that experience? And what, what did you bring back and, um, you know, just and ideas and visions that you have for Adis Nola after your trip to Ethiopia? Ooh, Ethiopia, Ethiopia, how our people say <laughs> it. Um, my goodness, this is one thing that I, that I took away Whenever I went, it was the third day, my third to last day there. I was there for 10 days. Um, as soon as I got there, first I'll say I didn't have any luggage. So I was there for five days with no clothes, having to find a way to source clothes. So that's, there's some funny pieces of the story. But before I left, um, there was a feeling, there was a word, a phrase that really left me um, that, that was came over me just in a moment of reflection of the trip. And I said, this is the land of God. Ethiopia is the land of God. Come to find out, about a month later, I'm reading this book by Chase McGee, um, The Voice of Our Ancestors. He has three volumes. He's a young brother in Atlanta who I met at um, the Invest Festival, which I also met you at, um, uh, oh. and your son, uh, uh, San John, in Atlanta. Um, one of the first pages he talks about this land from 5,000 years ago, uh, you know, origins of Kemet and all these places. And they called this place Tanatur. Kemet, if you're familiar, is within that area of Eastern Africa. Okay. Tanatur, come to find out, in 5000 BC, Tanatur translates to the land of God. 7,000 years ago, before, before I even read this book, 7,000 years ago, they called this place the land of God. And on my three days before leaving, just in reflection, in meditation, it came to it came over my body, and I couldn't stop rejoicing and telling people, "This is the land of God." Why? They have uh, Mount Entoto, which overlooks this 
su- supremely populated city full of so many things. Um, you have uh, the Sherafas, these these centers of community and coffee where they'll do Ethiopian original coffee roasting ceremonies where coffee was found. And, and you get a chance to enjoy coffee with some of the world's premier artists, one of them being Malaku um, Abe, uh, recognized as one of the best dancers on the face of the earth at Fendika or Totote, which means really fast. They have some of the fastest service I've ever seen in my life. If they were in New Orleans, we would be seriously out of business. Um, (laughs) 400 seats in this restaurant. And I mean, their service was impeccable. It was flawless. And it's a shame Mm -hmm. that these restaurants and some of these establishments that exist in the continent aren't given the utmost respect that they're given because I promise you there's places in Europe that could not hold a candle up next to some Mm -hmm. of these places. Um, And you have just the people, right? Like New Orleans, in the same way when you come to the city, you feel the love of the people instantaneously. You feel like you're a part of it. In Ethiopia, Mm -hmm. you, it feels that same way if you understand the country. You have to know these people are this country, our people are uncolonized. There is no European influence in Ethiopia. They've fought against it, the on, being the only country to fight against it. So you have to understand and think from their perspective. English is not the most popular or favored language to be spoken. Do your best to learn the language, to try to speak, even if you make attempts and fail miserably. It will be received with so much love and honor if you do that in Ethiopia. Um, So, I mean, we're going to hopefully within the restaurant, our goal is every January for Christmas to bring a group of people with us. Um, And then you'll take a break Mm, at the restaurant. That's it, right? Um, (laughs) Definitely stay tuned for that. I'm I'm in the works um, and obviously getting inspiration from Zella and her daughter, who are also doing this work um, around Mm. the world as well. Um, Thank you. You know. Your mom, you know, is, you know, in New Orleans and 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 Ethiopia and just you know, African, East African, Caribbean, um, Southern culture, you know, Black culinary matriarchs are integral to our community. And, you know, when I see your mom, you know, at Magnolia Yoga Studio, which is this community place, um, center for wellness, for healing, for, you know, intentionality ran by our mutual friend, Ajax, has really, you know, whenever I see her in there doing hot yoga and just being intentional about her mental health, it is so refreshing, you know, and because a lot of times culinary matriarchs, you know, they have health issues because they're trying to keep the family together or keep the business going. But mm-hmm. to see her in there, you know, being intentional about her mental health and her wellness is so profound to me. Your mom is amazing. I just have to say that. <laughs> oh my goodness, she is, and 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 thank you so much. I, I receive that and hope to source some like ten percent, a percentage of some of that amazingness uh, from my mother. Man, she 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 knows how to take care of herself. She um, I think she understands how important it is what we do and the work that we're doing, and she takes on so so much on her own. Um, one of the hardest working people I've ever seen or even heard of in my entire life. Um, yeah, you know, so for you to hear that from you again is just like, yeah, like I, I want, we need her around for a very, 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 very long time um, because Absolutely. there's so many things that I think still need to be done. The trips to Ethiopia being one of them, which mm-hmm. I hope, you know, down the line, it will be a part of one of our really big goals as far as continuing to connect our people across the world. Um, 
but yeah, no, she's amazing. She's a superstar, without a doubt. If no, if you know, I'm not, I'm not gonna wait for nobody else to say that. She, Doctor Brooke, Mama Brooke yeah. is a superstar, and, and you know, yeah. no shortage of uh, powers, no shortage of grace, no shortage of uh, elegance, and just uh, you know, a, a light on this earth. So, and your dad. You- Back in the kitchen, whipping those pots and keeping it all together. And, you know, your staff, I mean, your staff, the people that you all have attracted, you know, Turning Tables, NOLA, the, the, you know, you have two servers that are from Tanzania and, you know, an Ethiopian, um, you know, adopted, um, you know, who who wants to reclaim his heritage, you know. And so I think you just, it just shows the love and the healing space that you all have created. And, you know, when I'm there, I sometimes, or I'm invited to, you know, somebody's birthday party or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's it's so warm and fuzzy when you walk in and it's like this light aura that's around the restaurant. So I just want, you know, encourage you all to keep going and, you know, you all are doing profound work in the city. Um, and, I, you know, and if you, any of our listeners are in New Orleans, definitely, you know, check out Adiz Nola. It's definitely, um, you know, a very, very, very unique family owned business that has a lot of love in it. Um, but I want to I want to end on, you know, just one last um, question before we end our podcast, this episode. Um, you were on the on the, the food section for uh, the New York Times recently about black chefs in New Orleans. Um, historically, you know, there has always been challenges of black chefs um, being promoted, being recognized, um, being paid, you know, equally in this city. And so how did it feel to be recognized with all of the amazing chefs that were on that um, photo, you know, that um, was featured in the New York Times? How did that feel? It it was a moment in history. um, And as well as yourself being included in that, I knew it was the right place to be, right? Um, It was a moment in history. Um, something that needs to be reserved, that needs to be preserved, collected, shared, doc, and, 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 and spread throughout our family legacy. Your great, our great, great grandbabies uh, need to have that in their hands. Um, and I'm sure they'll have access to it through other ways that we probably won't be able to imagine. But um, that was a moment in history, um, a, a, a pivotal moment, a, a turning moment. Uh, one that has been in the works for so many years in New Orleans, but one that really shows and exemplifies the change, uh, the, the, the turning point, the um, precipice, should I even say, of uh, uh, when things change and for ownership of, of culture, ownership of history, uh, reclamation of history um, and community uh, in New Orleans, seeing these, you know, veterans, seeing these uh, well-decorated and exquisitely talented chefs, historians, storytellers, um, community leaders be together on one of the largest platforms in America for one of the most important stories that exists right now. Um, excuse me. One of the most important stories that exists right now, it is 
an image that will live for the rest of history. Um, and I was just honored to be a part of it, to be considered to be a part of it, to understand what it means to say that in 1960, you know, our people weren't allowed on roads. They weren't allowed on streets, in buildings, to drink from certain water fountains, to go to certain restrooms. Not further than 80, 70 years ago. You know what I mean? Mm. 50, 60 years ago. Right. You know, that our people weren't allowed to even look in certain directions without being abused, without being beaten, without being mm. hung. My mm. God. My yeah. God. For us to be there at that moment in Congo Square and Armstrong Park and to mm. be the folks to represent our community, our ancestors, and those who come after us, it was a moment in history. Ashe. Well, we want to thank you all for listening to Culture and Flavor. Uh, thank you, Prince. Thank you so much for this beautiful episode. Um, I want you to say it one more time. Can you please <laughs> tell you, <laughs> Julia, that she's Nola? <laughs> I got you. Um, yeah, I'm again. I'm 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 honored to be here. It was a beautiful conversation. Um, you know, I hope this gets to our great great grandbabies as well, and to as many people in the states okay. who are looking for, um, you know, other people who are doing similar work as them, who are looking for people who look like them, who who want to feel that inspiration and uh, mm -hmm. motivation to make a change in their own communities, in their own households, within themselves. Um, I really want this to lead as an example um, that anything on this physical realm is possible. Your spirit mm. has to believe it. Your mind has to believe it. And physical is the last level. It comes into existence. It comes into fruition whenever your beating heart, your mind believes it. Anything? Can I? Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say to our uh, to our listeners. And how old are you, Prince? I'm uh, 25. Look at that. Look at that, 25 years old. And it's just its just the beginning for him. So, you know, much love and much blessings uh, to Adis Nola, to your family, um, your legacy that you're building. We are so excited to see um, the future of, you know, food that you and your family are going to create in this city. Um, and may it, you know, triple fold and, you know, maybe an Angolan restaurant will be in the future. Come you on. know what I mean? Come on. <laughs> So you can tell your dad's side, you That's know. Right. So we're excited. We're excited. So thank you. I do smell now. Woo! <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> thank you all for joining Culture and Flavor with Zella Palmer. It's a pleasure. And we will see you on our next episode. Culture and Flavor is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org.